This is God's word. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and all the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, and all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, and all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I'm sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You, therefore, shall prophesy against them all these words, and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high, and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold, and shout like those who tread grapes, against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He's entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other, They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of the flock. For the Lord is laying waste their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair, for their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Read that far in God's word. You know the events of Good Friday. From about 9 o'clock until noon on Good Friday, the hill that we call Calvary was a very busy place. The soldiers had performed violent tasks. 
The passers-by had blasphemed. The chief priests had scoffed. The robbers had reviled Christ. One of the thieves had repented. Jesus had spoken a few short and now famous sentences. Each of these events and all the busy activity is well documented in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And then God's word reports to us that at 12 o'clock noon, straight up noon on Good Friday, the scene at Calvary and the surrounding area were changed dramatically. Precisely at noon and instantly, something incredible happened. The whole land became dark. This midday darkness was not just explained away by some fast-moving weather front resulting in a thick cloud covering. No, cloudy is not the correct word. Cloudy is not near sufficient. The word is dark because it actually was dark, fully dark, everywhere. Matthew 27, 45, and the Word of God reports, there was darkness over all the land. It refers to the entire earth. This darkness came about when least expected at high noon. The instant and full darkness was intense and unforgettable, and it lasted for three hours. Why is there complete darkness at noon on Good Friday? Why is there a man on the cross dying? How are we to understand Good Friday? To understand what happened during those three hours, we go back to our passage in Jeremiah. And just a a programming note, if you will, for those listening, I'm now going to jump back to Jeremiah as a prequel, go through all of that, and at the conclusion of this sermon, I'll come back to where we are now in the thought process of those three hours of darkness on Good Friday. So come with me. I'm going to spend the rest of the main part of this sermon in Jeremiah 25. And the main point is this from your bulletin handout. Every nation must drink the cup of God's wrath and be destroyed in God's judgment. Yet Jesus drank the cup for his select people from every one of those same nations. First, we'll see how reading the roll call for the cup of the Lord's wrath happened. Secondly, insisting on a mandatory and devastating end to all nations. And thirdly, the wailing of the shepherds and the day of slaughter. So first, with reading the roll call, verse 15, we get introduced to this cup, the cup of the Lord. It now dominates our passage. The Lord himself is the one who serves it up. Verse 16, what happens when the people drink from the cup? They stagger and become crazed. They're losing their minds. They're becoming insane. In verse 17, God makes every nation drink the cup. Verse 18, we start with a roll call of nations to drink the cup. Who's first in the list of the judgment? Think of yourself in elementary school. Who's the student that would be voted most likely to be called down to the principal's office? The the misbehaving one, right? You would think that that name would be the first in the list. Who, Who might you expect? Egypt? Moab? Who would be first in the list to receive judgment from God and drink this cup? Verse 18 has our answer. The very first word of verse 18 Surprising, isn't it? Jerusalem. Jerusalem? We're beginning with Jerusalem? Yes, God's judgment is first visited on his own people because they are the most privileged. They are the least excused. The people of God have the word of God and have it in abundance. They ought to have known better. 
Amos 3.2, where God said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Amos 3.2. So we begin with Israel, and the list is so complete. Look at it, verses 19 through 25. It serves as something of a table of contents. Don't worry, more detailed pronouncements on these nations is coming. Chapters 46 through 51. The list of cities runs over the entire map of the ancient world, obviously making the timeless point that all nations will be judged by our God. We get to the last of the verses, uh, the last of the list in verse 26, the last name in the list. Guess who? Babylon. Do you find irony in that? That it's God who used Babylon to bring his people into exile to punish his people, And now at the end of the day, God's going to punish Babylon for doing his work. Why? Because it's sin. Because it's wrong and Babylon needs to be punished. The same point is being hammered home quite effectively, isn't it? God will judge every single nation. He's going to start with his own people and then he'll end with the worst of the nations, but he will judge every nation. Verse 27, God told each nation to drink the cup of wrath to come under the influence of the contents of that cup. And to, um, let me put this the way the King James Version puts it, to spew. (laughs) Then to fall down and never rise again. The cup of wine is the cup of wrath. And it's symbolic of the sword, symbolic of the military attack that God is literally sending in real time to each of the nations. Verse 28, we learn that no one can decline You don't just say to God, no thanks to this cup. No one can refuse the cup of wrath. Every nation is on the roll call. Remember that judgment begins with the people of God. And the Apostle Peter is the one who later understood this fully and with the help of the Holy Spirit then wrote these words of Scripture, 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey? The gospel of God, 1 Peter 4.17. Doesn't that cause a chill down our spines? None can refuse to drink the cup that God gives. Just a little spoiler alert here. If you fast forward to you know where we're going this evening, and again I say none can refuse to drink the cup that God gives, even Christ the Son of God was obedient, willingly obedient, to the Father's will, but don't lose the fact that it was a command. You must drink the cup. There's no other way. Moving to our second point now, to insist on a mandatory devastating end to all the nations. Verse 29, what is the city called by God's name? It's as if it's a fill-in-the-blank riddle. What's the city that's called by God's name? Jerusalem. We saw that earlier in our study in the book of Jeremiah. The God who calls Jerusalem to account for its sins is not blind to the wickedness of the other cities and the other nations. Of course he's not blind. If God's people don't get a pass, no one's going to get a pass. But notice something in verse 29. Against whom will the sword of God be sent? Against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 30, God shouts like a lion against all the people of the earth. It's affirmed in verse 31, to the ends of the earth, against the nations, and again, with all flesh. Here God explains, 
he has a legal right to punish the guilty in every part of the world. He's the God over all of it, you see. And in verse 32, again, it says, from nation to nation and from the farthest parts of the earth. And if we haven't had it sealed home yet, verse 33 repeats, from, e, from one of the earth to the other. This is not a story of Israel and only Israel. This is a story of the God of Israel for sure, but the God of Israel is the God of all the heavens and the earth. And he is the judge to whom all nations and all kings must answer. That is the point powerfully made in these verses. All the greatest, all the most powerful kings and prime ministers of all the leaders of all the countries you've ever heard of or read, all of them tonight are under the leadership and rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father. All centuries of all human history in every part of the globe will face the same judge. Don't worry, the ones that are on the news and the ones that are over you, local, national, every last one of them will answer to God. They'll be powerless and shattered as the people that they've governed are so badly governed that they too would be shattered and powerless before this God. Is that not the clear message of these verses? Insisting on a mandatory devastating end to all nations, we move to our third point, wailing of shepherds in the day of slaughter. Verse 34, God is like a lion. And this is a continuation picked up from verse 30 about God's mighty roaring. Who else roars like a lion? Usually and previously, the lion was the enemy nation. The, the surprising nature of trying to get across to you that God is the lion is uh, something that would come across to the initial reader. But here, the lion is the Lord God himself who's about to ravage the wailing shepherds of verse 34, the shepherds and lords of the flock of verse 35, the crying shepherds of verse 36. It's the Lord God who is the lion that's about to lay waste the pasture in verse 36, and God is the lion who's about to devastate the peaceful folds of sheep in verse 37. One characteristic is consistent regarding this lion throughout, his anger. The anger of the lion is clearly the picture of the wrath of God. And all this roaring now turns into action all of a sudden. In our last verse, verse 38, where we shudder as we read that this lion is no longer just sitting and roaring. He's actually left his lair. The lion is on the move. And we're overwhelmed by this picture. We have the picture of drinking the cup of God's wrath. Now we have a new picture of God being a lion. The picture is the same. God's anger against sin. The personal passion and energy of the Lord for destruction is rather shocking to us, isn't it, in its intensity? But the cup of God's wrath or the roaring and prowling of this lion is the same. God's wrath is powerful against sin. It's the cup that's poison, powerful poison that causes people to lose their sobriety, then lose their lunch then lose their ability to stand, then lose their ability to live. It just progresses just like that every time. The cup of God's wrath is the sword. The cup of God's wrath is the lion. It's the enemy from the north that we've read about through Jeremiah. It's Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar. 
If God could use locusts, if we're in the book of Joel, it's God who's behind the anger. The attack from Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar is an attack from God. The exile is from God. And on the last day, when the cup of God's wrath comes to all the nations, when it truly, literally, and physically comes to all nations, we, Christ's people, will need not fear. Our cup, the cup of God's wrath meant for us, will have already been drunk by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Good Friday is about. Matthew 26, 39, Jesus' own words, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And on Good Friday, when we hear that word cup, does it not remind us of that phrase, of that poignant cup of Gethsemane, where our innocent Lord accepted the cup from the Father in order to drink that cup in our place. However, because Jesus bore our sins, drinking the cup would cause him bitter suffering and death, for he's the sin-bearer then. Luke twenty-two forty-one. Jesus knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke 22, 41-42. We're reminded on Good Friday of the difference between what God said to Jeremiah here in Jeremiah 25, verse 15, and what God said to Jesus. God said to Jeremiah to make all the nations drink the cup. That was God's message to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, 15. Make the nations drink the cup. But what did God say to Jesus? You drink the cup. That's what we're reminded of on Good Friday. That's the difference between this prophecy and what we read of in history in the Gospels of Good Friday. I'll say one more in in the Gospel of John, 1811. After Peter pulled out a sword, remember, and struck someone with it, apparently ready for a physical and violent fight in order to protect Jesus, How wrong-headed was that for Peter? Did he not realize the true source of danger to Jesus was not these men with their swords? And so Jesus corrected Peter in John 18, 11. Listen, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup he knew about was the sword. Not the swords of these men, that, the swords that Peter could perhaps clash with. How many Peters, with how many swords, would it take to protect Jesus from the sword of the Lord or the cup of his wrath, of his Father in heaven, against our sins which Jesus was bearing? Peter had no idea that he understood the whole scene backwards. It was not Peter who needed to protect Jesus from danger. It was Jesus who needed to protect Peter from danger. What have we seen? We've seen that every nation must drink the cup of God's wrath and be destroyed in God's judgment, yet Jesus drank the cup for his select people from every one of those nations. We saw the roll call of the nations. 
We saw the insistent, mandatory, devastating end of all nations, point two. And thirdly, we saw the wailing of the shepherds and the day of slaughter that every king, a shepherd is a king or a leader, every prime minister, every king, every nation, every person will come under God's judgment. So what is our, our conclusion? Remember how I said, Good Friday in the darkness, and I said, we're going to go away to Jeremiah, and I'll come, come back with me now. We're, we're thinking through Good Friday and the events of the day. This is the conclusion of the sermon, so let's go back to the high noon cross, darkness on Good Friday. Sky is dark, remember? Now, how does what we learned in Jeremiah relate to the darkness in the middle of the day on Good Friday from noon to three? How does the cup of God's wrath relate to the darkness of the sky? Both show us the wrath of God against our sins, born by Jesus, and how the wrath was poured out upon him. He's drinking the cup in the darkness. See, we're warranted by the prophecies such as Jeremiah and other places in Scripture to conclude that the extraordinary darkness on Good Friday announced the displeasure of a holy God against our sin. I think that's pretty obvious and clear to us. This doesn't surprise us because alternately, an extraordinary supernatural light announced God's pleasure at the birth of our Savior. Matthew 27, the special darkness announced the death of our Savior, just as the special light had previously announced the birth of Christ. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Matthew 2, 1 to 2. So if he came into this world with special light, is it really surprising to us that he would end his life under cover of special darkness? Those standing near the cross that day, Good Friday, experienced the most unusual phenomenon. In the dark, they experienced an actual miracle of darkness. An early Christian author, a man named Tertullian, referred to this three hours of darkness when he reminded non-Christian readers, non-Christian authors, that the wonder is related in your own records and is preserved in your archives to this day. So apparently even non-Christian authors alive at the time wrote down a really strange thing that happened on such and such a day in amazement about the time of darkness. In contrast, notice how reserved Matthew is in his writing. Notice the restraint of Matthew in writing this for us. Understated, he didn't embellish his story in a manner that enhanced his credibility as a historian. Matthew simply reported the words we read in Matthew 27.45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's just fact-based. But we got to really think about what that means. These are hours of utter darkness, and they're also hours utterly silent in terms of reporting. No one wrote about what happened during those three hours. 
Not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John, not Paul, not even our non-Christian authors. No one has data for us on that time span. These hours represent a gap in the narrative of Matthew. From Matthew 27.45 to Matthew 27.46, there's nothing. During these three hours, we know absolutely nothing else about what else may have happened. Much happened just prior to the moment of darkness descending. Jesus had prayed for the soldiers who were crucifying him. Jesus had given words of promise for the believing criminal who was beside him on the other cross. Jesus commended his mother to the care of the beloved disciple, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders taunted Jesus. There was a lot going on just prior to noon, just prior to the darkness falling. But with the descent of the darkness, all of Matthew's narrative abruptly halts. It's as if By the darkness, God the Father himself is pulling a veil over the unspeakable suffering of his own son right then. Because Matthew, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes nothing more about it than the words that we read in verse 45, that darkness was over all the land. We've learned from the prophecy of Jeremiah what happened, haven't we? Jesus Christ was drinking the cup of God's wrath. Not a literal cup. It's just, how else do you say it? We came here tonight to deepen our appreciation for that. After the three hours, the narration picks up the story with the the next verse, and the next verse interestingly reads, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He breaks the silence with that cry. And we have a return to Matthew's busy narration of events after that. What others said, the running to fetch the sponge, the offering to Jesus a drink, the comments of people. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again. Verse 50, Jesus yielded up his spirit. In verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, the earth shook, rocks were split. Verse 52, tombs were opened and the bodies of many saints who had died were raised to life. In verse 53, the resurrected people came out of the tombs. In verse 54, the centurion saw the earthquake and what else took place and was filled with awe and said, this truly was the Son of God. Verse 55 tells us many women who were there looking on from a distance women who had followed Jesus from Galilee. Tons of things narrated just before the darkness. Tons of things narrated by Matthew immediately after the darkness was lifted, beginning with the ninth hour and Jesus crying out, but absolutely nothing given to us about that three hours other than the prophecy that we got in Jeremiah, someone has to drink the cup of God's wrath. Why is the light withheld from Christ? Why is there a man dying on that tree? Why is there darkness three hours in the middle of Good Friday? Because God the Father made Christ to be sin for us, and then he poured his wrath on him under cover of darkness. And we don't have a single other word about that for three hours. so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. 
1 Peter 2.24, drinking a cup, or the image of drinking a cup. We've talked about negatively so far, but remember, there's two ways to drink a cup. If you take my medicine, it might be poison to you. If I take your medicine, it might be poison to me, right? Drinking a cup depends on what's in the cup. Is it a curse or a blessing? It's the image of a curse that we've seen here, but it depends on what's in the cup. Psalm 23, 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My what overflows? My cup. It's good. It's a blessing. The cup of blessing overflows. Health and goodness and mercy following us all the days of our lives. So we could have a cup of blessing or a cup of death. Which is your cup? Poet George Herbert wrote, Love that is liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. It's the same cup. Because he drank the cup of wrath, all that's left from God to you is blessing. That's it. There's no more frown. There's no more displeasure. There's, there's no more uh, condemnation. There's no being sent to the principal's office. There, there's no folding of the arms and ticking of the tongue. There's nothing left but favor and acceptance and love and blessing from your God to you because Jesus has taken all of God's wrath against our sins. So when we, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we have bread and a what? We have bread and a cup, and the, the cup is victory over death, but it's tied to the cup of wrath that Jesus drank. We can't just separate it. It's tied. It's the cup that literally represents Jesus' own blood, the precious blood he spilled while he was drinking the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup that pours forgiveness over us because he had God's wrath. We could have not have the cup of blessing in the Lord's Supper. We could not have the favor of God over all of our lives unless Jesus had been willing to drink that cup of suffering, God's wrath had been swallowed by Christ in the darkness so that we can receive the sweet cup of God's love. So I would say to you, enjoy the favor of God. Enjoy the cup of blessing at the Lord's Supper, but it really is a representation of over all of our lives that God is pouring favor on us because of the cup of wrath being empty. The cup of wrath towards you is empty. There's not a drop left in it. There's no wrath of God for you. Jesus drank it all. The judgment here is appalling and inescapable. Clearly, it points us to the coming judgment, the full judgment, the down-the-road picture is hell. Of course, that's mirrored in this passage, isn't it? And Paul picks up and reflects on that Romans eleven twenty one. 21. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. See, before we get to resurrection morning... We need to face Good Friday. Before we can really appreciate the kindness of God, we need to consider again the price of the severity of God. 
God's judgment engulfs and includes the whole earth. There's no escaping. There's no sidestepping. There's there's no someone who can say, ah, you must drink. God said, you refuse the cup, you must drink is the answer. Book of Revelation, chapter 7, we need another roll call of names. Remember the roll call of names? Here in Revelation 7 is a list of names, and it's the names of those who get the good cup, those who get the blessing of God, those who are the remnant, those who are the sheep of God, the people of God. It's listing out the tribes of God's people. Destruction of the nations of the earth was halted until the exact number of all of the tribes was brought into safety. And then we read, consider Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, says John the Apostle, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, listen, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. Remember last Sunday how the king entered on a donkey riding over what on the road? Coats and palm branches. God has not forgotten that. The king got a little glimmer on Palm Sunday of the glory that's due him. And then the king five days later gets the full brunt, the wrath of God due us. He drank it to its dregs. He drank it gone. He drank it dry. Everything was poured out on him. And then he rose again. And he's coming again. He's commanding us to serve him. He extends his kindness to us. And the severity of God was fully satisfied when the king swallowed the cup of wrath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.